coming up next week. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Last week, as you know, we looked at Saul's life being transformed and redirected and how he then uses Ananias to go and to minister to Saul. He had to get over his fear and trust God and be used by God to bring sight back to Saul and allow him to get the Spirit of God. Saul proclaims. Saul encounters persecution and Barnabas stands in the gap. Our redirected and transformed lives happen when we encounter Christ. The Lord can redeem anyone. I want to start today with just a little side note, and I will mention this from time to time because it's very important when we start looking at Scripture. And one is uh, the importance of understanding the difference between descriptive and prescriptive Scripture. I know that you you know this, but it's an important reminder, especially when we look at a narrative. You know, a prescriptive passage of Scripture could be what we find in Philippians. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your request known to God, and the peace of God which uh, uh, surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, that was written to the Philippian church, but it's something that can be very prescriptive for us as well. Not so prescriptive and a little bit more descriptive would be Old Testament, uh, God's command for the Israelites to go and destroy the Midianites, right? So what do we do with that? We don't take that and turn that prescriptive for ourselves. So we always have to be thinking about that when we look at a scripture, a passage, and a a certain book. We're in a narrative uh, of the Acts of the Apostles, and it is by nature descriptive. So applications uh, are challenging, requires a lot of prayer. So we've got to be thinking carefully, even just as we read Scripture on our own, about what's happening here. And so with that said, we're going to continue to look at these amazing accounts in the book of Acts. God using his faithful ones to prove the gospel message. Peter works in the name of Christ, and it leads to salvation and the continuing of the Judean ministry. It's interesting to note that the focus of Luke shifts back from Saul now to Peter for a little while. Look with me now at Acts chapter 9. We'll start in verse 32, Acts 9, 32. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Peter's in Lydda, or Lod, and it's in the region of Sharon. Sharon is about 10 miles wide and about 50 miles north to south. And here we have Peter enter the scene again. And Peter is, remember, a fisherman by, by trade. He's invited by Jesus to follow him. Be a fisher of people. I will use you to bring in men and women and children into the kingdom. To be a disciple. 
And not only was he a disciple, he was really an inner circle disciple. When you think about it, he and James and John, they got to go up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses and Elijah show up. Peter, by nature, is bold and confident. And yet, when he makes those promises to Jesus, he doesn't keep them, does he? He denies Christ three times. Peter's epic failure. It's huge. And yet, what what happens after that? Jesus meets him on the shore, right? Serves him a fish breakfast. That is not on the menu for my breakfast, I want you to know. But if Jesus is cooking, I'll give it a try. Fish breakfast. But what does he say? He, he asks him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? What does he say? Feed my lambs, tend the flock, right? He, he, he's saying, listen, I'm, I'm reinstating you. I'm going to use you. And then what do we find here at the beginning of Acts? Pentecost. And who preaches? But Peter. And thousands come to faith. So now we, we have been through Acts as far, so now we need to get back up to where we are. He comes to the saints at Lydda. And notice that there is already a collection of believers there. He came to the saints who lived at Lydda. That's interesting because saints is a word that, that gets a little bit of different uh, definition at times, doesn't it? A common one is a person acknowledged as holy or virtuous and typically regarded as being in heaven after death. We certainly hear that in the Catholic realm or the Eastern Orthodox and some of these. But if you look at Luke's phrase again, came to the saints who lived at Lydda. It's not the dead. And if you remember a couple weeks ago when, when Chris was here, what, where did he read from? Ephesians 4. Pastors are to, to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. You can't equip dead people to do stuff. So he's speaking of those who have been justified, declared righteous through faith in Christ. That sanctification set apart as holy. In this case, they would have been likely Jewish Christians. Possibly these are believers fleeing from Jerusalem because of persecution. It's also possible that these people came to know Jesus through the ministry of Philip. So they're in Lydda. They're about 25 miles from Jerusalem. This little distance right there, how you like my pointer? Isn't that slick? All right, I just wanted to use it. Anyway, but they're in Lydda, and then it's going to be in Joppa, and Caesarea kind of comes into play eventually here. While Peter's in Lydda, he came across a man named Aeneas. We don't know much about him other than that he was confined to his bed for eight years. He's paralyzed. Suggests that maybe this was from an accident or a disease. So Peter says to him what any of us would. If you saw a, a paralyzed person laying on the ground, you'd say, get up and make your bed. Right? You'd do that? Any of you in here ever said to anybody, get up and make your bed? Oh, come on. None of you have said, get up and make your bed. Okay. I don't don't understand these people, Charmaine. Help me out. Uh, (laughs) They need more kids. All right. Anyway, sorry. Now you distracted me by not, not raising your hands. But no, he doesn't say that. He says, Jesus heals you. Rise and make your bed. And Peter's words here make it clear that there's no doubt about who is doing the healing work. 
is Jesus' power through Peter. He doesn't say, I, Kepha, or I, Petros, or I, Peter, heal you. He says, Jesus heals you. And the man immediately got up. A miracle is a testimony, isn't it? And maybe this reminds us of Jesus encountering the man at, at Bethsaida. What does he say to him? Take up your mat and walk. Remember, first he says, do you want to be healed? Which is kind of a cruel question. He's waiting by the pool, right? Hoping to get in and, and hoping to be healed. Do you want to be healed? But then he says, take up your mat and walk. I want you to, to be aware of that because I want you to remember that Jesus observe, uh, did ministry and Peter observed it. Peter had watched. What's the result of what happens here with Aeneas? The people saw him and turned to the Lord. Luke is right to the point here. The people cannot deny the supernatural miracle that takes place right before their eyes, or they cannot deny the fact that all these witness say, witnesses say, you should have seen what happened. He just told them, Jesus heals you, get up, and he got up. Or maybe they couldn't deny their own eyes when they actually got there and saw him standing on legs that were whole. Maybe by then he was jumping, doing some jumping jacks or dancing a little bit. I don't know. They couldn't deny it. Notice how the work done by Christ through Peter leads to the salvation of others. Hold that thought. The work done by Christ through Peter leads to the salvation of others. Central. Essential. The miracle opens the door and authenticates the gospel message. When you consider Scripture, we see kind of three big areas where there are significant miracles happening. We know that we have all the miracles around the Exodus, right? And the plagues and the parting of the sea and so on. Then you have some more happening in the, in the time of the prophets, Elisha and Elijah. And then you have the gospel and, and, and Acts, the New Testament. There's these seasons where we see these miracles taking place. Now I'll ask you, would it be fair here for me to, to try to make this personal? Again, we always got to think about how we're using Scripture. It's always important to decide. We got to go back and say, okay, what's the author's intent? What was, what was meant for the original audience? And, and what does it mean to you and I? A key question to ask is what I talked about before. Is it, is it descriptive or prescriptive? Now, I'll let that thought just sit there for a minute, and I'm going to ask you, are you being used in a way to where people must look at Jesus because of the work you are doing? Now, I know the excuses. Preacher man, you're the one that's hired to do that, right? <laughs> We've got our excuses, our, our things that we want to hide behind. Let me ask it another way. Does your life proclaim a testimony that you are being used by the Lord? I'll ask it another way. Are, are people around you hearing who Jesus is at some point? Even more significant, are people around you turning to the Lord? Isn't that what we want? Isn't that what we're called to in the Great Commission? Look at verse 36. 
Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room, and all the widows stood behind him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. Joppa. Again, I want to show you the map again. I want you to think about this. There's some debate as to whether or not it was Gentile or Judean at this point. According to Baker's Encyclopedia of the Bible, it says this. In 147 B.C., Jonathan and Simon defeated Apollonius Teos, the Syrian general, and occupied Joppa as a reward from Alexander Bayless, the contender for the Syrian throne. Through a series of political moves in the next few years, Simon was able by 142 to fortify the city, expel the Greek inhabitants, and firmly establish Joppa as a Jewish city. During Pompey's Roman occupation, Joppa was declared a free city. It was returned to the Jews by Julius Caesar in 47 B.C. It was captured by Herod the Great in 37 B.C. Due to the hatred of the residents of Joppa, Herod built a new port at Caesarea, north, 40 miles north, and by the time of Jesus' birth, Joppa was under the rule of Caesarea in the province of Syria. So if you can get that all straight, then you can figure out exactly what the city was, all right? But it certainly uh, appears to be Judean with some, likely some significant Gentile influences. It's interesting to consider here that this story is also sandwiched between the conversion of Saul and Peter's vision to the Gentiles, which we'll get to next week. Tabitha, the Aramaic name, or Dorcas, the Greek name, meaning gazelle, was a person of charity, and she was known for it. I'm going to stop and get, get into our li own lives here for a second, and I want to ask you the question, a powerful question to consider. What are you known for? There have been many times in my life when that question has just come up in, in the way I'm living, or something makes me think about that. How am I known I remember being crushed many years back by a drawing that one of my sons did when he was little. He drew a picture of me, and I wasn't crushed by the distorted body that he gave me with two different length legs and really long legs and these little T-Rex arms and his tiny little head. That wasn't the part that bothered me. What bothered me is, is he drew me in the garage holding tools. And the caption at the bottom, he wrote, Daddy in the garage. He meant well with it, but it crushed me because it made me realize this is how my son saw me. And I thought, I don't want him to know me as that. I don't want him to know me as dad in the garage. I'm like, come on, I'm a pastor. You go to church where I work. <laughs> like, it made me think about how, how do I live? How am I known? There's been other times in my life where my pride became forefront, and, I, and the Lord drew it to my attention, and I thought, I don't want to be known for that. And I don't know if you realize it, but pride is really, really sneaky. It sneaks up on you. It never comes barging through the door and makes this loud presentation, and all of a sudden you're prideful. It sneaks in. And I came to a place in my life where I realized there's pride, and I was like, I don't want to be known for that. 
What are you known for? Tabitha here is known for what she can craft. She becomes sick and died. This is where things get strange. They, they wash her and lay her in the up, upper room. That's not really the, the custom. Normally, they would immediately go and buy spices and oils, and they would wrap her up tight in that immediately. That was their custom. I mean, sometimes as much as 100 pounds of spice wrapped tightly with this oil to just deal with the smell that's forthcoming. But they didn't do that. They washed her and put her in the upper room. And you, was it so they could grieve? It's possible. So people could see her for it first? I don't know. But the request is interesting, isn't it? The Joppa believers heard that Peter was near and requested that he come quickly. Isn't that interesting? Did they simply want Peter to, to come so he could pay his respects to this amazing follower? Or did they have a greater hope, such as her rising from the dead? A sad scene. The grief customs are going on, and Peter arrives, and he's brought to the other room, and the widows stand around him, and they're crying, and they're holding up these things that she's crafted. And again, that's kind of normal in a funeral, right? We talk about the things that a person does, what they're known for. But you have to wonder if Peter isn't thinking while he makes this 12-mile journey, why do they want me to come so quickly? And there's certainly plenty of time to discuss with those two men that came and got him. They've got a 12-mile journey in their Toyota. It's going to take a little while, right? They can, they can talk for a minute about, so she's dead, right? Why are we speeding? What's the rush? I mean, had they put together that Peter had just healed Aeneas by the power of Jesus, maybe he can raise the dead like Jesus. Look at verse 40. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. He gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord, and he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Peter calls for a private miracle. Again, we see this picture of Christ and what we see of Peter here, but he's, he, he sends them outside and he knelt down and prayed. Peter prays before calling the dead to life. Again, we understand that prayer is essential for a disciple, is it not? Prayer helps prevent us from those dull uh, things that can come in and take over our faith. It keeps us seeking God for direction. It keeps us humble. But maybe his prayer there has more to do with what we read in John 11. Remember the story of Lazarus? John eleven forty one. 41. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on the account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. 
Jesus prays as a demonstration there, doesn't he? So maybe Peter remembered that Jesus prayed. He says, Tabitha, get up, or Tabitha, arise. Same word commonly associated with the resurrection of Jesus. The sense of the word is to resurrect. Now, it's important to note here that Tabitha died again. She's not still with us. It's also a neat connection to even Jairus' daughter who had died. Remember in Mark chapter 5, verse 41, taking her by the hand, he said, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. It's kind of neat, the Talitha kumi and the Tabitha kumi, but don't take it too far. It's just fun. Little girl, I say to you, arise. Tabitha, arise. The reality of the miracle is simple. She opened up her eyes and sat up. There is life in her again. Can you imagine it? The people who had seen her without life, people that knew she had died, people that noticed that she was already becoming cold, losing her color, stiffening up. As a pastor, I've had many occasions to be with people as they are passing away. When death comes, the signs of death show up quickly, don't they? But imagine Peter then walking her out and now presenting her alive. It's stunning to the people and amazing. And I'm sure Peter had to be smiling behind her as he's thinking about this. That he got to be a part of that. Again, Peter is this figure of Christ. She's presented alive and the news spreads quickly. It continues to spread across the greater Judean area. Salvation is had. The Great Commission is being realized through the church. And then we're told Simon, or Peter stays with Simon a tanner. Now, it's interesting because tanners were considered unclean by the Jews because they worked with animal hides and the dead. And maybe this is a sign here that Peter is taking a step toward Gentile outreach. We'll see more of that next week. Now, this is what Luke records for us, and it's pretty straightforward. But I'd like to chase a thought here, if I may. We figured since there was some healing involved, uh, we would just do this. So I'm going to invite uh, Pastor Thomas up, and he's going to start a healing service so he can form a line here if you have some needs. I'm just kidding. Not going to react to that? (laughs) All right. I don't know what to do with you people. I just shared that because it's easy for us to love the dynamic and the sensational. Think about that. I mean, I would have loved to have seen that. The dynamic, the sensational, the stuff we can't explain. Our news sources want to find the most stunning and exciting news they can, right? They want to draw you in with sensationalism. And there's often interesting stuff to report, sensational stuff to report, uh, political stuff, crazy things that people say, uh, terror attacks or war. Uh, Our hearts are drawn in when we see people suffering or bleeding or crying or whatever. Weather news, they try to dramatize that too, and, and I think it's forever now been corrupted by that, that scene that was caught there where that reporter was leaning into the wind, remember? And then you look behind them and there's people just w- casually walking their dog. 
<laughs> you know, faking this big storm, right? What's that guy leaning for? We like the sensational. These miracles are incredible and noteworthy. They're sensational. They even parallel ones that Jesus himself did. Or ones the Old Testament prophets did. Elijah raises the widow's son. Now hear me now. They served as a means to an end. A means to an end. Now, if you're like me, don't, don't you wish that we could have some of the same things happening now that would help us further authenticate the message we still carry? And wouldn't that be great? I mean, last week we talked about the idea of how, wouldn't it be great to see certain people come to faith and how they would champion the cause then, Right? How great could it be if we could walk onto the campus and perform miracles and then say, hey, come to Parkview, we'll tell you more about Jesus. Or if you could walk through the pediatric wing of the hospital, healing every child as you went, lungs taking on their proper shape and function, tumors disappearing, ankles straightening out, the mute can speak, even sing. Wheelchairs left behind, parents overwhelmed with joy. Do you think people would listen as you explain the gospel after that? I think they would. It's fun to consider, but we have to have a note of caution here. As Jesus sent out the 72, if you remember, he spoke about the unrepentant cities that would not respond. And he said, if these miracles that you have seen were, were performed in Tyre and Sidon, these evil cities... They would have repented, but not you. All that to say, even in the most amazing of events, not every heart will respond. It's fun to consider what, what miracles could, could do, like if, if we could just perform them at our will. But hear me. We must not value the miracle more than the one whose power accomplishes it or even the purpose for which he has done it. I want you to think about that. We must not value the miracle or the supernatural more than the one whose power accomplishes it, or even the purpose for which he has done it. Let me explain. His miracles were amazing. We stand in awe just even as we read them and consider them. We say, it's, it's stunning, but it's rather God, you are amazing. And I'm in awe of you. I'm in awe of this little picture I get of who you are, God. A picture of your, your power and your plan. Let me take this a little further now. What are the best things we read in these two accounts? What's the best thing we read there? Crippled man healed can stand up and make his bed. That's great. Talented and generous woman who was loved by many was able to live a few more years. That's great. What's the best thing we read in these two? 
And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. The miracles were a means to an end, and the end was those coming to faith. Amazing miracles. Yes, without a doubt, you or I would have stood there stunned, probably slobbering down our own chins. But the amazing thing is that God used these things to draw people to himself, to authenticate the message. Isn't that cool? It was about him. It was about his purpose. It was about his message. If you don't believe me yet, let's go to Luke 5 for a second. These friends go and they bring their crippled friend to the house. They can't get him before Jesus. So what do they do? They go and they rip open the roof, don't they? What do they do? They lower him down right in front of Jesus. That's a good way to cut in line, isn't it? They cut in line. They've got this, this serious physical need right in front of Jesus. There's no way Jesus can ignore it. He's coming in there. There's stuff falling on their heads. But what does Jesus say to him? He says, your sins are forgiven. They're all sideways, right? You, you can't say that. You can't, look, he's got any, you can't forgive sins. Like, he knows they're frustrated. They're no, he knows they're confused. They're questioning. And then he says, which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk. And he heals the man. Again, what is the greater thing that happened in that moment? He forgave the man's sins. All right. Why does this matter? I think we want it. We want the dynamic. We crave it. If you've walked with the Lord long enough, you've seen those times when he answers prayers supernaturally. You know it's God. It had to be God. There's no other explanation for it. So we like that. We want the dynamic. We pray for the dynamic. We even have great rationale for why. And I don't know if you do this, but I've been guilty of thinking that the Lord's been wrong. Lord, you and I both know that this would bring great glory to you, so do it now. But he doesn't do it in that moment. Why? Lord, Lord, Come on. Why not? I've been guilty of thinking he's wrong. The eternally changed lives are the dynamic part of this story. God in his omniscience knows when, in the course of time, to show more of his power for the purpose of authenticating his messengers and his message. And in this New Testament season, they had a new message, didn't they? We just shared in communion. This cup is a new covenant in my blood. 
There was a new message, wasn't there? And he's authenticating it. The good news about this is that if we see this in this light, then God hasn't stopped doing the dynamic and doing the sensational in our midst. When hearts and lives are drawn to Jesus, we are seeing the dynamic. We are seeing the sensational. That is why, Parkview, that we have to be on mission for Jesus. Because our God is sensational. His work done in hearts and lives is incredible. Just some thoughts and I'll wrap up. God's power to do the miraculous is without limit. But it is also his discretion as to when to display it. He gets to decide, and guess what? He's right. You can trust him. He knows what to do. Second, Peter served following the example that Christ set. That was discipleship, wasn't it? He thought to himself, I know what Jesus would do in this moment. And I had to throw this one in there. It's a little bit tangential, but it's not in the big scheme. As Christians, one day we will taste of the glory of resurrection. Not resuscitation, of resurrection to new life. And it's to that end that we wait. Let me close in prayer before we sing in worship of our King. Join me. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of you. And Father, we thank you that you are not done with us, that you are still calling people to faith in you, that you are still doing the dynamic, you are still at work. And Father, we thank you for the word and for the testimony that it is to us of who you are and how you operate. And Father, we would just ask that you would continue to work in a mighty way. And Lord, may we never, ever grow dull or tired of understanding who you are and what you do. And may we constantly seek to see you move and accomplish your will and your purposes in your time. Father, we just pause and we, we just want to worship you. You are holy and you are mighty. And we thank you that through the shed blood of the Savior and the victory over the grave, that we can come and we can come before you as your children. Sensationally saved by your grace. We worship you, our King. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Will you guys stand?